So we've, we've spent the last four equipping classes, not counting the you know, two corporate classes, uh, looking at the doctrine of salvation, specifically how it is that God applies the salvation that he has accomplished to the lives of individual believers. And while God is certainly concerned with the salvation of the individual believer, there is also something grander that he is after. So to get us thinking in that vein, I'm curious how you would answer this question this morning. Why did you come to gather at University Baptist Church today? Think about that. Come up, come up with an answer, and you don't necessarily have to say it out loud, but at least come up with the answer in your own head. Why did you decide to gather at UBC this morning? And then maybe a follow-up question to that is, how important is the church to you? Now, I realize some of this is preaching to the choir because you're here. Uh, but nonetheless, motivations and why you're here, how important the church is to you, I think are questions that we want to be considering. So throughout our time this morning, I hope to highlight for you why the doctrine of the church might be more important than what you might initially think. And if the case is compelling, you might have a completely new, di- new dynamic in your life that will upend the way that you spend your time or think about the direction of your life, how you may choose a job in the future or a place to live, how you might spend the next 10, 20, or even 30 years of your life. So today and the next week, Lord willing, we'll be thinking about how individual believers live together as the people of God This is an area of theology known as ecclesiology. So turn to your neighbor and say ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So the the common Greek word for church uh, in the Bible is ekklesia, which literally means gathering or assembly, such that ecclesiology is the study of the church. So throughout history, people have, de- have debated how to understand the church. And we're familiar with some of the controversial issues, at least in our modern day. Are women allowed to be pastors? Should infants be baptized? Who gets to take the Lord's Supper? Those types of things. And next week, we'll wrestle with some of those issues. Uh, we'll consider the role of preaching in the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper, church discipline, church governance, biblical church leadership. But it's important before we get to those controversial questions that we spend time considering how it is that God has organized believers into an institution that is ordained by him and that exists to bring glory to him. So think about that for a minute. The church is ordained by God for God. So that should kind of set the stage for how important uh, the doctrine of the church is. So questions like, what is the nature of the church? What are God's intentions for the church? What are the characteristics of a healthy church? Or maybe the best place to start, what is the definition of church? So you can see in your handout uh, the definition of a gospel-believing church taken from our statement of faith. So let's read this together. It's fairly lengthy, so to keep you from nodding off, I figured we'll read it together. We believe that Christians are to associate themselves into visible churches according to the Lord's command, that a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers bound together by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, 
and exercising the various gifts given them by the Holy Spirit for building up the church and making disciples of all nations. That its authority extends over the membership, discipline, doctrine, and leadership of the church. That its primary duties are the reading and preaching of God's word and the right administration of Christ's ordinances, including the faithful exercise of discipline over its members and that its only scriptural offices are elders or pastors and deacons. And while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to qualified men according to scripture. So it's a lot, right? So you don't need to set your timer. Uh, we won't be getting into everything in, the, in that statement this morning, but we do want to highlight what it is that the Bible teaches that makes up and defines a church. So let's look at point two on your handout there on the front, the church defined. And again, as we go through the class this morning, I want you to be thinking to yourself, if what we're saying is true, what does this mean for my life in relation to the church? So who makes up the church? Not what makes up the church, but who, right? The church may be defined as the community of true believers in Jesus Christ for all time. So this is why the nursery rhyme, here's the church, here's the steeple, right? Open the doors and see all the people is, is cute, but not entirely theologically accurate, right? The church is not a building. It's not a steeple and a, and a place. The church is the people of God in Christ in all time and places. So consider Ephesians 5.25, which says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. So here the term... The church applies to all those who are saved by the death of Jesus Christ. And this necessarily includes all true believers for all time. So both believers in the New Testament age and after and believers in the Old Testament age. So to be clear, the church does include true believers from before the time of Christ. So this is not to say that the entire nation of Israel constituted the Old Testament church, but only those that God had brought to himself through saving faith. So there would have been, there would have been Israelites, right, who lived within the nation of Israel who were not part of the true church because they were not the Lord's. So Paul has this notion of a believing remnant, this group of faithful Israelites, uh, clearly in mind if you think of Romans 9 and through 11, when he, like Jesus in John 8, clarifies who is the true Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, Paul says in Romans 9, 6. So Paul claims that it's not the physical descendants of Abraham who are God's children. The real descendants of Abraham who are God's children are those who have faith in the promises of God. Okay? The apostles understood the church to be a fulfillment of the promises that God had made to Israel. So it doesn't surprise us to see Peter calling the New Testament Christians in 1 Peter 2, quote, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's 1 Peter 2, 9. Nor does it surprise us to see James writing generally to many early Christian churches and referring to them as the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So the church is the Israel of God. The church is the true successor of Israel. Uh, also, 
Paul in Galatians 6, 16 makes that argument. So if this is true, what it means for each of us is that we are the church, meaning we are the true successors of Israel, which means the storyline of the Old Testament runs right through the New Testament, right on to us, and then on and on and beyond. Now, certainly we are not the heroes of this story. Rather, we are the heirs of the promises of God. And what this ultimately means is that our identity as the church becomes the single most defining characteristic of our lives. So think about it. If all of redemptive history, right, sweeps us up into this great and grand story, then we need to see that we are living out this miracle every day of our lives. So friend, your identity as the church is the unparalleled and unprecedented point and purpose of your life. It's a big statement, right? Say it again. Your identity as the church is the unparalleled and unprecedented purpose of your life. It is at the center. It is the sun of your solar system that all of your life should orbit around. It also means that for many of us, we have greatly underestimated our place in this story of God and the important role that we play in the narrative of God's universal glory in his church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and look at verse 21 to maybe grasp the weight of this. Ephesians 3 verse 21. lest you think that I have overstated the importance of the church in redemptive history. No Christian would, would say that you could overstate the importance of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ, but listen to how Paul writes in Ephesians 3.21. To him, to God, be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. So think about the statement there, right? We would all nod in agreement with Paul that God's glory resides in the person of Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. But how many of us would go as far as Paul to say that that same level of glory exists not only in Christ, but also in the church? And that's exactly what Paul says is at stake here. So more on that to come, but just setting the stage for this. So let's look at point three on the front of your handout, the church of Jesus Christ. So the next thing that we should see as it pertains to the church is that the church belongs to our Lord Jesus. It is his church. He brought her into being. He's the one who purchased her with his own blood. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter, I will build what? My church. My church. Right? Entrance into the church is gained by having faith in Jesus. Thus, the church is international in membership and allows no ethnic, gender, or social divisions. Reconciliation of worldly divisions is finally accomplished in Christ. So within the church, according to Paul and Colossians, there is no Greek or Jew, Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3.11. So at the cross, Jesus not only made reconcili reconciliation between God and man possible, but between man and man. 
Paul says that God's purpose was to create in himself one new man, i.e. the church, out of two men, Jew and Gentile, right? Consequently, Gentiles are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. Do you understand how important that is? How How many of you in here are ethnically Jewish? So if this weren't true, there's no reason for us to be here this morning, right? If Jesus didn't break down that wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, then we are all out of luck, right? So we are specifically recipients of what Christ accomplished there on the cross. Now, does this mean that I stop being white or male once I become a Christian and join the church? No, no, not at all. God does not abolish all constructs of our identity. Rather, the point is that our new identity replaces the old identities at the center of who we are, such that being man or woman, black or white, American or Chinese are no longer our central identities. We are Christ's. We are Christians. We are Christ's and he is ours. Our union to him and his church is our ultimate identity. Now, we are not just invited into this organization. It's not just some institution that we have gained membership into. It's not a country club or a rotary club or some service organization. We have gained access into something much greater. Christ shed his blood so that we might be welcomed into the family of God. And so it is. We are joined to, banded with, affixed to not just one another, but also to Christ, the cornerstone. So each and every time we gather corporately, we should be reminded that we are part of a much more important body than what we might at first realize, with a much more important mission than we often recognize, which is to represent Christ as ambassadors, or I should say to represent as Christ's ambassadors, our Lord to the world. So being a part of Christ's church means we have duties and responsibilities far more important than our schooling, our careers, or even our families. So before we move on to point four, any questions or comments here? And where is that, Frank, on earth? Well, in the Old Testament, it was in the tabernacle. In yeah. the New Testament, and to this day, it's in the church. Yeah. And ultimately, it will be in heaven. Yeah. And this was a card I wrote for my mother-in-law when she was in the nursing home. And on the back are these words, the best is yet to yeah. come. Amen. And, 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 you know, here David, you know, at a point in time, the house wasn't what we know it to be today. Right. And and yet he says, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Hmm. And I thought, <laughs> your question, and I thought, wow, I guess I got a pretty good answer. Yeah, you do. That's a good uh, one. And, you know, just from an unlikely place, 
Yeah, right. The yeah. importance of it, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, and I like that, that the best is yet to come because, like you said, there's kind of this natural progression, right? Like tabernacle, right. temple, yeah. church, yeah. and then one day, yeah, yeah glorification. Yeah. So yeah. that's good. That's and good. one other thought that mm-hmm. I have, uh, you know, through the years I've talked to people who had a very low opinion of the church. Yeah. Uh, one of them is my own brother, and he basically said, all they want is my money. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I would just add, um, people that, I don't know how many people have grown up in this church, but what you're teaching is definitely not mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I've attended a lot of uh, dispensational churches, mm-hmm. and uh, I've actually taught on the church, and it's it's been frustrating to me because in a lot of those churches, I think they diminish the work of Christ and the glory of Christ. Mm-hmm. That is true. All right. Well, let's move on to point four on the inside of your handout. Biblical metaphors for the church. So in order to help believers better understand what the nature of the church is like, Scripture uses uh, a lot of word pictures, right? A lot of metaphors to clarify how we should think about it. Generally speaking, these Metaphors can be divided into four groups, and each has something to say to us about how God relates to his people and what our response to him should be. So as we discuss each of these, think about what the image means for us as the church, okay? How can we live out the metaphors that scripture lays out? So let's look at these uh, one by one here. So the first group of metaphors, and if you like filling in the blanks, I did this for you this morning. The first group of metaphors, and I think probably the sweetest, is the image of a family. So the family image. Paul regards the church as a family when he tells Timothy to act as if all the church members are part of this larger family. So we are told to treat older men in the church like fathers. Treat younger men like brothers. Older women like mothers. And younger women like sisters, according to Timothy 5, 1 through 2. God is spoken of as our heavenly father, and Jesus calls his followers his brothers and sisters, Matthew 12, 49 and 50. Have you ever thought of Jesus as your older brother? What a wonderful thought. So if you haven't, I challenge you to start doing so. These images remind us of how deeply the relationship that those in Christ's church are to have with one another. We're to love and treat one another as we would our own family. And then in a somewhat different family metaphor, Paul also refers to the church as the bride of Christ. You're probably familiar with this in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. And the bride analogy kind of brings out a little different connotation dealing with the importance of purity as we are presented to Christ upon his return. The next group of images to note includes uh, those images that are drawn from agriculture, so agricultural images. 
<clears throat> in John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. How good is a tree branch severed from the trunk? Yeah, you've seen them all over your yard. And you pick them up and you throw them in a burn pile, right? Uh, yeah, Jesus used that analogy too. So a, tree, a branch separated from its trunk, is, 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 it's dying, if not already dead, right? It's, it's useless. It's worthless. Um, and Jesus is drawing that out too, right? That connected to him, you have all that you need. Separated from him, not a good place to be. Uh, first, or I should say, yeah, in... Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, the church is compared to a field of crops that was planted by man, but grown by God. So these passages all have specific applications when taking in context, but a general theme is this idea of resting in Christ, right? And that we are to rely upon God for growth in the Christian life. The church is also referred to as a building, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. Um, but a more pronounced image in scripture, and Frank alluded to this already, is that of the new temple or the temple of God under the new covenant. So while a building um, or meeting place may be called a church in our vernacular today, sometimes we're kind of loose with that. And Oh, that, you know, drive by, I go to that, ch- that church. Um, scripture speaks to a church as a corporate assembly of believers in Christ. That's why you'll sometimes hear our service leaders uh, at UBC say something like, welcome to this gathering of University Baptist Church. We're we're being intentional in that language, right? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this building or this temple imagery gives us a clear idea of God's intent for the church. The Old Testament temple was to portray God dwelling with his people. It is where his glory was shown to the world or put on display. And so too, we need to be mindful of the fact that God's spirit dwells in us in order to glorify God to the world corporately. And as we mentioned earlier, this means that the mortar that holds these bricks together in the church are not those commonalities that unite the world, like race or education or socioeconomic status or political affiliation. Rather, our common bond is the simple confession, Jesus is Lord. And then finally, the idea of the church expressed in several passages is that of the body of Christ. And perhaps this is the best known image of all. So 1 Corinthians 12 speaks to the values of the different parts of the body, that different parts are required for the whole to function as it is intended and designed to function. And the lesson here is really twofold. First, there is an exhortation for unity in the church. We ought to live like one body. Second, we should appreciate the diversity of parts that make up this body. So we each use our different gifts for the good of the whole body so that God might be glorified. And the head of the body, of course, is Christ, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So we see that scripture provides multiple images of the church to aid our understanding of it and of the God who has ordained it. 
So listen to this quote from theologian Wayne Grudem. The wide range of metaphors used for the church in the New Testament should remind us not to fo focus exclusively on any one. Each of the metaphors used for the church should help us to appreciate more of the richness of the privilege that God has given us by incorporating us into the church. So don't just pick your favorite metaphor and camp on that. Be sure to explore all of those in your thinking and assessment of how the church should look for the glory of God. So the purpose of the different metaphors in scripture is to spell out for us just what it means to be grafted into Christ's church. It's meant to show us with exceptional imagery the importance of our existence as part of this church. We are to show the world a love for one another that can only be recognized as familial. We are told to hold fast to the Lord, following all of his ways, demonstrating to the world that we are not our own, but belong to him and to one another. We are to be the new temple of God in the world, drawing all men to Christ. We are to be the body of Christ to one another, showing a stunning display to the world of a unity that shocks the senses. This is what we have been called to as Christ's church. Any questions or comments here? Okay, let's move on to point five. The church, visible and invisible. <coughs> so in its true spiritual reality as the fellowship of all genuine believers the church is invisible we can't yet see this church so this makes sense when we remember that we as humans cannot finally know the state of the hearts of other humans we certainly can see those who attend the church or who have made profession of faith in christ we can also see outward evidences of inward change and we're called to do so but we cannot finally know another person's true spiritual state. Only God can. The Lord knows those who are his, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19. That's why when we dismiss a church member at UBC, we're not like the church at Rome saying this person is no longer a Christian. What we're saying is that we can no longer affirm this person's profession of faith, right? But that said, we do have some idea about the salvation of others. We can be very confident in someone's salvation based on the fruit, of her, uh, the fruit in his or her life. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them, Matthew 7, 16. But nevertheless, we are not fallible, or I should say we are fallible, and we cannot make infallible judgments about the truthfulness of someone's profession of faith. So ultimately, it is God alone who knows those who are genuine believers with certainty, and without error. So in that sense, we can say that the invisible church is the church as God sees it, right? Invisible to us, but not to our omniscient God. On the other hand, the church does have a visible aspect as well. We can say that the visible church is the church as true Christians on earth see it. In this sense, the visible church includes all those who profess Christ and evidence their profession by fruit in their lives, fruit of faith and repentance. And we see this implication several times in Scripture. 
So Paul addresses many of his letters to contingents of the visible church, as we have defined it. He writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And then he writes to Philemon and to the church that meets in his home in Philemon 1, 1 through 2. So Paul's thinking and writing in these categories. Paul also frequently mentions both generically and by name false prophets or those who appeared to be believers but then renounced the faith. So in other words, because of human sin and error, the visible church will always include some non-believers. But the Lord is sovereign over the integrity of the true church, and he will recognize the true believers when the time comes. So one of the things at UBC that we strive to do is to have a membership that insofar as we can tell is made up only of Christians. We want our church to consist of regenerate church membership. In other words, we want all of our members to be born again, to be genuine Christians. Otherwise, our witness as a church would be compromised. We believe, to the extent that is possible, the membership of the visible church should match up with the membership of the invisible church. So that's why when someone wants to become a member of UBC, they have to profess faith in Christ, have made that profession publicly made known at one time by baptism, and have their knowledge of the gospel examined and then covenanted with us in submitting to the discipline and doctrine of the local congregation. And if you want to see the culmination of that, come to the members' meeting tonight. That's exactly what you will see as we add members to the church, is you will see the working out of that as the elders uh, have met with uh, these applicants and are putting them forth uh, before the church for membership. So come see that in full display. But, but why do we do all this? Why do we go to this end? So that UBC will better display the gospel to those in our community. So again, if you leave with nothing else this morning, leave knowing this. The church is a display of God's glory. That's what is at stake. It is the gospel made visible. Okay. Frank. I haven't yet heard you fill in the blank on point B. Oh. Let me see your handout. I don't have one up here. Uh, the visible church is the church as it appears to the blank and to the blank. Uh, as it, the, say it one more time. Uh, the visible church uh, the visible church is the church as it appears to blank. God and true Christians. Oh, okay. God and true Christians. Well, actually, no, that wouldn't be right. It's just as it appears. I don't know why there's two blanks there. That might have just been a typo. Oh. So I think it's just true Christians. This, this, let, me see, let me see where I read that exactly. Um, we can say that the visible church is the church as true Christians on earth see it. I may have just messed up on the blanks there. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, the invisible church is the church as God sees it. The visible church is the church as true Christians on earth see it. Sorry about the confusion there. Thank you for that mm-hmm. clarification. Though. Is it true Christians and to the world? Do you have echoes on this one? <clears throat> is it visible? Yeah. Well? Yeah. Yeah. That might have been where the and came from. Yeah, good. Thank you, Sam. I felt like I read it that way, but I can't see in my notes where I said that. Yeah, so. yeah I was looking. I kept listening to see if I could hear it, and I did. So that's why I asked the question. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it would be. It would certainly be. That would be accurate. That it's true Christians and the world. Okay. Any other questions?
say this is why we even have like a mechanism for church discipline is because there's that discrepancy between the visible and the invisible. Like this is why the Lord yeah. has allowed us to like remove people from fellowship is because we can't see how right. they see. We may have made a mistake. Um, so he like gives yeah. an allowance for us to kind of. It's good. Yeah. It's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. It's good. And one of the things that in that first point there where you say that God sees it, you know, I just thought about the thief on the cross. Yeah. And there's nobody that would have thought him. <laughs> no one else was going to affirm his salvation, nobody. right? Nobody. Yeah. Now, so Jesus does. He's God. Uh, but, you know, that gives people hope. I mean, because, right. you know, if you're saved late in life, there may not be a whole lot of fruit that comes after that. And yet God knows your heart. And, and if you're going to truly confess Christ, he, you're going to be there too. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think there is such a thing as deathbed confessions too. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it said about the thief on the cross that the story of the thief on the cross is there so that no one would despair. But it's the only account in Scripture so that no one would presume. Yeah, yeah. boy, that's great. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to point six, the church local and universal. So this is another distinction that Christians have made throughout time, the local church and the universal church. I think this is where a lot of people get their heads a little bit confused. So I think it's important. Uh, that we parse this out. So in the New Testament, the Greek word for church is used to describe a group of covenanting believers at nearly any level. So this term is used interchangeably at times, ranging from a few people gathering in a private home all the way up to the group of all true believers that make up the universal church at all times and all places, right? So for example, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So here's a local church meeting in a member's home. Likewise, the book of Revelation is addressed to seven specific churches in Asia. You may have thought about that. In Acts 9.31, we see the church mentioned in a more universal sense. Quote, then the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. So clearly not just one specific local church there. Also in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. So if you know how the term apostle is used in the, in the New Testament, that it's, not, it's someone that's not given to any particular church, such as an elder or pastor would be, then it's clear that this reference here in 1 Corinthians 12 is to the universal church, right? So there's not an apostle in every local church. This is this is Paul using this term for the universal church. So the point here is that a group of believers at any level who meet the biblical criteria for a church, that's important, can rightly fall under either the specific or general definition of the word church. So we at UBC are a local church, but we're also part of the universal church that other local churches like maybe First Baptist Elkins or Generations Church in Springdale are a part of. So why is this distinction between a local and universal church important? You may ask yourself. Because the New Testament expects Christians to join a local church. Local church membership is basic, not optional for Christians. There is no category in the New Testament for Christians that are part of the universal church and not part of a local church. It simply does not exist. Seven letters to seven churches. They're 
That's true. That is true. So the universal church reminds us that we are not alone and can partner with other gospel-believing churches for the sake of the gospel. So a lot of people, to Frank's point, will say, well, I can just be part of the universal church. I don't need to join a local church. But that's like calling yourself a baseball player without being on a team. Doesn't make sense, that's right? Like, it's like calling yourself a baseball player and you don't even have a bat. Yeah, yeah. Or Nick, it's calling yourself an attorney and not being a part of the bar, right? So. Yeah, under the new rules. Yeah. Used to be a pitcher had to hit. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's lastly, or let's move uh, let's move to point seven: the church militant and triumphant. So, what does it mean when people say, and you may not, this may not be as familiar. I may have heard this in certain circles, but what does it mean when people say that the church is militant and triumphant? Well, the church is militant in the sense that it's comprised of those who are still living and engaging in spiritual warfare constantly. So, those who are on earth at this moment, right? So the church is called into holy warfare. Now, obviously, this, this does not mean that the church uses the weapons of this world, okay? No one can become a Christian by being forced into it, say, like in the religion of Islam. A Christian is given a new heart by God's Spirit in order to live a life of repentance and faith. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? Not against other people, but against the spiritual forces of evil in this present world and in the heavenly realms, and I have a note here, super sky point to Frank Peretti, if anybody remembers that guy. Anybody remember Frank Peretti? Yeah. Frank, yeah. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I figured there'd be like three or four people who would get that joke. He wrote some books like back in the 90s like about like spiritual warfare, like from like a real, how would you describe it? Like almost. Yeah, I mean. I'm not, I'm not commending the books. Okay. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's almost just kind of like. It's imaginative. It's imaginative. <laughs> nope, that, yeah, that's, yeah, you don't want to do that. Yeah, that's not, that's not necessarily the, the yeah, point, in the right? Middle of the night, you wake up, there's somebody in the room, and there's knives. Yeah. Not exactly yeah. what I would recommend. Yeah. But the reality is that the, that the church is at war spiritually. Um, but the church is not only referred to as militant, but also as triumphant. So this is kind of that already but not yet tension. This simply means that the church is comprised of those who are in heaven. And in heaven, the church will be shown to be victorious. Christ said that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How's that for guaranteeing a victory? It doesn't get any more triumphant than that. So we are not fighting a losing battle, but a battle that is already won in Christ. Maybe Peretti should have pointed that out a little bit more clearly. In the, the. So if you're not familiar with the old hymn, The Church is One Foundation, you should check it out. All right. Great doctrinal lyrics in that one. Any questions, comments at this point? The church local, the church universal, the church militant, the church triumphant. We're going to get to that. Yep, we'll get to that. At least a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to do like a whole, but the, we'll address that. We'll come, yep, we'll actually kind of close with these attributes here from the Nicene Creed.
So, good question. Any other questions? Yeah. We'll get to that. No, <laughs> no. absolutely not. I am not. An, I do not stand up here before you claiming to be an apostle. No. <laughs> All right. So our our last point here: the attributes of the church. We're doing good on time, so we actually have a little bit of probably time left over. There's a couple more questions. The attributes of the church. So if anybody's familiar with the Nicene Creed, maybe a little bit less familiar than the Apostles' Creed to most people. But the Nicene Creed is a confession that's, you know, that, the, that the church has used throughout its history. Uh, the Nicene Creed refers to the church as one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. So what does that mean? All right. So let's look at these adjectives separately. First, the church is one. Okay, And this comes from Ephesians 4.4, 4, which reads, there is one body. The oneness of the church signifies its unity and solidarity in Jesus. So in John 17, to see how important this was, the high priestly prayer before Christ goes to the cross, he prays to the Father for us, everybody in this room that's the Lord's, and for every believer in time and place in history, that they may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you, Father, sent me, Jesus, John 17, 23. That's how important this was, right? The, one of the last things that Jesus prays before he goes to the cross is for the unity, the oneness of the church. So this unity is built upon Christ and glorifies Christ, and it becomes stronger as we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 3. So at this point, one might ask, why are there so many denominations of churches, Right? And it's not a cop-out answer, but I think this is the reality. Because God gave his perfect word to imperfect people. So Christians are fallible and differ on doctrinal matters of secondary importance. These differences in no way reflect poorly on the clarity or truthfulness of Scripture. It's an indictment on us. The Christian's unity is spiritual and not necessarily organizational. So in one way, denominations are God's grace to an imperfect people to help make organizational unity in the church possible by removing barriers that may cause disagreements in the church. <clears throat> but perhaps the Lord leaves us with differences to work out in order to teach us how to love. So that's the oneness of the church. Second attribute, the church is holy. Philip Ryken says this, I, like, I really like this quote. With the exception of the prison system, the church is the only institution for bad people. <laughs> it is not our own righteousness that makes us holy, but Christ's. There's the gospel for you this morning. The church is purified by Christ's blood and made holy. We are holy as Christ is holy. The bride is made holy by the holiness of the bridegroom. Okay. So that is what is meant by the holy church. Third, the church is Catholic. Now, what does this mean? Catholic basically means universal, and we've talked about that already. So not Roman Catholic. So in the, in the Apostles' Creed says that as well, right? It uses the word the holy Catholic church. Universal is a synonym there. So the church is universal, and we've already discussed this in talking about 
contrast or the differences between the local church and the universal church. So the universal church is made up of all believers for all time. And as we've stated, that is something that brings God's glory. Okay, so that's that third adjective. And then the fourth, Blake, the church is apostolic. Okay, now this has been interpreted differently by different churches throughout Christian history. Roman Catholics would say that being an apostolic church means that there is an apostolic succession of bishops who have inherited the apostles' authority to exercise rule over the church. That's one interpretation. Charismatics, on the other hand, would say that being an apostolic church means that the church can do today what the apostles did in the early church with their miraculous signs and wonders. Okay. Paul says... All right, in Ephesians 2.20, I'm going to stake my flag with Paul, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. And this is where we uh, would, would start and hold. So the apostles were commissioned by Jesus to represent him to the world and to spread his gospel. Jesus is the cornerstone, and the apostles laid the foundation, right? And then the Holy Spirit gave them the power and authority to speak and act in the name of Christ, and it was on this foundation of acts and teaching that the church holds to and is built upon. So that's what is meant by the apostolic church. The apostles were commissioned, and we now take that commissioning to the world in the form of gospel proclamation. Okay, So there are no <laughs> apostles walking around on the earth at this point in time. Okay, And that light flickered. That was the Lord affirming the truthfulness. <laughs> So the attributes of the church consist one holy Catholic or consist of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Okay. So next week we'll get into the marks of a true Christian church. Any questions before we wrap up here or comments? Nick. Yeah. So I've had dialogues with friends about the apostle nice particularly the Nicene Creed and that language of the Catholic... Who are these friends that you're having these discussions with? <laughs> yeah, I need to meet them. Yeah, I get to meet them. Well, I, I guess, you know... I no, I'm kidding. Go ahead, please. I'm sorry. Talk about it. So, but usually I say I'm comfortable. I usually just... Partially being provocative, I do say, like, yeah, I'm comfortable with, you know, like the affirming the Catholic and apostolic church. Mm-hmm. But usually I find, I, I guess in the context of some people I'm thinking of, they come from a ba- uh, particularly here in Arkansas background of landmarkism. Yeah. yeah. And so dealing with their understanding of the Catholic and apostolic uh, is different than ours. Right. And leads to very, when I say that language, it leads to some very yeah. different interpretations. How do you suggest explaining <laughs> that to them? Yeah, that's a good. So ex- explain to everyone what, what, la- what landmark Baptists or who landmark Baptists are. Um, my understanding, landmark Baptists are Baptists in the sense that they affirm a credo baptism, but they broke off from the Southern Baptists in the 1860s, and they are still prevalent here in Arkansas, Tennessee, and I guess like East Texas, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so, but the the gist of it and where they get the idea of landmark is is that they believe that they carry, I guess, a pure lineage of Christianity and that they are the only believers to affirm the proper credo-baptism along with some other elements. They Basically, they believe that beginning with the Catholic Church after Paul, 
all go off and are not practicing Christianity, I guess. Okay, yeah. And, and, would, and they would say, too, that, like, they would say that the Protestant Reformation wasn't necessary because there was always a remnant of faithful landmark Baptist going all the way back to John the Baptist and all the way through right. this point in history. There's a, there's a famous little essay, and I'm, I'm going to blank on the gentleman's name, but it's called The Trail of Blood, and it's a very short thing that explains this. And there's a, a graphic called The Trail of Blood, and it shows two trails. Their trail of Catholic or of martyrdom for all believers of credo baptism, but then they believe in the Protestant Reformation because we align ourselves or kind of come from this lineage of the Catholic Church, you know, with the skiism. We are not practicing the full, you know, true lineage of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think that that uh, those conversations, as with any conversation, it's always helpful to define terms yeah and I right? think that's the biggest thing like yeah it's just like you know if you're saying catholic to them they're going to probably like some of us in here think of the roman catholic right. church but then as well they have a very singular their ecclesiology is very much like a singular church like right in terms of their ordinance of baptism and other sacraments it will be exclusive to that i, I guess to that individual church or you know, if you will, like a parish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think, I think if you're having those conversations, you, I mean, it, yeah, we, you have to go out of your way to really define those terms, um, which I think is true in anything. I mean, that's just becoming more and more true in yeah. <laughs> every aspect of our lives. If you're having meaningful conversations with someone um, about important, important matters, you really have to go, go out of your way to define your terms. And then also asking them to define theirs. Right, and giving them the benefit of the doubt, and not just assuming that, um, you know. So it's all. I think it's always helpful in in in, co in conversations that have the you know ability to be contentious or divisive, to try to repeat back to the person what you hear them saying. Try to represent them as well as they're representing themselves and what they're saying, and then maybe maybe we can make some headway through those things. But yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's another place that you could press on that because I don't think a landmark, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not super familiar with them, I don't think a landmark Baptist would say that if you're not a member of a landmark that's Baptist correct. church that you're not a part of the universal church. So to that degree, if that's true, they're the ones that have the inconsistent theology. Right, I don't right? think they would say, like, even yeah. not being part of yeah. their church, you're not a believer. Right. But they just have, I think in terms of a heritage, they are claiming the landmark in terms of heritage. Yeah. And, it, and that's why I'm saying it seems like that they're the ones being inconsistent because I think we would both agree that there's always been a remnant of faith. Like the Lord has always had those who are his throughout every point in history, right? Um, and they're not, they're not disagreeing with that. So 
what the, but so on one hand, they're saying, well, how does one become a member of the universal church through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sins? And they would say amen to that. But then on the other hand, they're saying, but you have to be a member of this, this line of succession to be a part of the, you know, the, the expression of that church. And that, yeah. to me, is the inconsistency there. Yeah, I've heard that terminology. Yeah. Hey, as long as I'm as long as I'm at the wedding, you know what I'm saying? Like yes. that's as long as I'm at the wedding. But aren't they exclusive as to who can be admitted to their church? You have to be baptized by a landmark Baptist church. I'm not sure of that. I kind of think that they, they have to get you have to have a proper have baptism, and it's going all the way back to John the Baptist. That's well, then then they're then they're getting the gospel wrong at that point. Yeah. It's not just an yeah. ecclesiological yeah. argument. Yeah. See, that's what I that goes back to. Yes. Back to uh, the introduction. <coughs> yes. In the part where it talked about the only spiritual officers being elders, deacons, and pastors, I noticed it left out deaconesses, and deaconesses are also included in Scripture. Was yeah. that intentional? Uh, that's. I was reading from the statement of faith from you know the the church statement of faith. Um, Sam, how would you? <laughs> this is something that's on. That's. Yeah, how would yeah. you? Well, so here's what I would say. Yeah. Is that um, there are those who, who have a view that the office of deacon is reserved for males, and there's those who have a view that it's open to male and female. So regardless of what your view is of whether or not it's open for male or female, it's still the same office. So a female or a male could serve in the same office of deacon. So it's true that Phoebe in Romans 16 is called a deaconess. Mm-hmm. Some question as to whether that's referring to an official office of the church or whether it's referring to her as a servant <coughs> in general. So it uses the female form of the word servant because that's what deacon means. I mean, it means fundamentally it means servant, but it is also an office of the church. Does our church, in, yeah, our church in Austria, we actually did have deacons. I would be one who would say that a, a lady could be. Yeah, There's, it's not two separate offices, right. as if men are right. deacons and women are deacons. There's one office of the right. diaconate. And that's the way that we saw it. And that's the way, in the, in the, you know, the, in the reading here, that is intentional, Susan, is that the office of pastor is limited to qualified men according to Scripture. It, we don't say that about the office of deacon. Exactly. So potentially there could be a deacon who's a woman at UBC someday in the future. Potentially. Yes. Um, also, at the beginning, it sounded like you were saying our lives are to revolve around the church. Did I get that right? Because I was yeah. thinking uh, God wants our lives to revolve around Him, which yeah. is in personal relationship. Yeah. So I yeah, and I would say those two are, are one and the same, right? So I think that was the point I was trying to make in being provocative in that language, in that in reading that passage from Ephesians three twenty one is. There's just there's no category for someone who is whose life's revolved around Jesus, but then don't have at the center of the universe their their you know participation in, in union with the local church. So that that is the I would say that, that the the local church is the visible visible expression of one's of one of one who's at the center of their solar system is Christ. Uh, 
making disciples of all nations. What are some ways that we can exercise the, so yeah, Alex is reading from the statement of faith, that we can exercise the various gifts given by the Holy Spirit for building up the church and making disciples of all. That's a great question. How would you guys answer that? What are some ways? Yeah, I think about, is it Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I love that. No hospitality, certainly. What else? What are some other ways we can practically work, work that out? I would say showing up. <laughs> when the church gathers, show up. Like all the one another's in scripture cannot be done if you're not rubbing shoulders with one another. Show up. Be here. Anything else that anybody would want to add? It's a great question. Okay, let's pray and then we're dismissed.